Chapter Four of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. Washington at that time presented a picture strikingly illustrative of military life in its most depressing form. To use the words of Captain Noyes, quote, there were stragglers sneaking along through the mud inquiring for their regiments, wanderers driven in by the pickets, some with guns and some without, while every one you met had a sleepy, downcast appearance, and looked as if he would like to hide his head from all the world. End quote. Every bar-room and groggery seemed filled to overflowing with officers and men, and military discipline was nearly, or quite, forgotten for a time in the Army of the Potomac. While Washington was in this chaotic condition, the rebel flag was floating over Munson's Hill, in plain sight of the Federal capital. When General McClellan took command of the Army of the Potomac, he found it in a most lamentable condition, and the task of reorganizing and disciplining such a mass of demoralized men was a Herculean one. However, he proved himself equal to the task, and I think that even his enemies are willing to admit that there is no parallel case in history where there has been more tact, energy, and skill displayed in transforming a disorganized mob into an efficient and effective army, in fact, of bringing order out of confusion. The hospitals in Washington, Alexandria, and Georgetown were crowded with wounded, sick, discouraged soldiers. That extraordinary march from Bull Run, through rain, mud, and chagrin, did more toward filling the hospitals than did the battle itself. I found Mrs. B. in a hospital, suffering from typhoid fever, while Chaplain B. was looking after the temporal and spiritual wants of the men with his usual energy and sympathy. He had many apologies to offer, for running away with my horse, as he termed it. There were many familiar faces missing, and it required considerable time to ascertain the fate of my friends. Many a weary walk I had from one hospital to another, to find some missing one who was reported to have been sent to such and such a hospital, but after reading the register from top to bottom I would find no such name there. Perhaps on my way out, in passing the open door of one of the wards, who should I see, laid upon a cot, but the very object of my search, and upon returning to the office to inform the steward of the fact, I would find that it was a slight mistake. In registering the name, instead of being Josiah Phelps, it was Josiah Phillips. Only a slight mistake, but such mistakes cause a great deal of trouble sometimes." Measles, dysentery, and typhoid fever were the prevailing diseases after the retreat. After spending several days in visiting the different hospitals, looking after personal friends, and writing letters for the soldiers who were not able to write for themselves, I was regularly installed in one of the general hospitals. I will here insert an extract from my journal. Quote, August 3, 1861. Georgetown, D.C have been on duty all day. John C. is perfectly wild with delirium, and keeps shouting at the top of his voice some military command, or, when vivid recollections of the battlefield come to his mind, he enacts a pantomime of the terrible strife. He goes through the whole manual of arms as correctly as if he were in the ranks, and as he, in imagination, 
loads and fires in quick succession, the flashing of his dying eye and the nervous vigor of his trembling hands give fearful interest to the supposed encounter with the enemy. When we tell him the enemy has retreated, he persists in pursuing, and throwing his arms wildly around him, he shouts to his men, Come on and fight while there is a rebel left in Virginia. My friend, Lieutenant M., is extremely weak and nervous, and the wild ravings of J.C. disturb him exceedingly. I requested Surgeon P. to have him removed to a more quiet ward, and received in reply, This is the most quiet ward in the whole building. There are five hundred patients here who require constant attention, and not half enough nurses to take care of them. Oh, what an amount of suffering I am called to witness every hour and every moment! There is no cessation, and yet it is strange that the sight of all this suffering and death does not affect me more. I am simply eyes, ears, hands, and feet. It does seem as if there is a sort of stoicism granted for such occasions. There are great, strong men dying all around me, and while I write there are three being carried past the window to the dead room. This is an excellent hospital, everything is kept in good order, and the medical officers are skillful, kind, and attentive. End quote. The weary weeks went slowly by, while disease and death preyed upon the men, and the soldiers' cemetery was being quickly filled with new-made graves. The kindness of the soldiers toward each other is proverbial, and is manifested in various ways. It is a common thing to see soldiers stand guard night after night for sick comrades, and when off duty, try, to the utmost of their skill, to prepare their food in such a way as to tempt the appetite of those poor fellows whom the surgeons do not consider sufficiently ill to excuse from duty. But their comrades do, and do not hesitate to perform their duty and their own also. And when brought to camp hospital, helpless, worn down by disease, and fever preying upon their vitals, these brave and faithful comrades do not forsake them, but come several times every day to inquire how they are, and if there is anything they can do for them. And it is touching to see those men, with faces bronzed and stern, tenderly bending over the dying, while the tears course down their sunburnt cheeks. There is scarcely a soldier's grave where there is not to be seen some marks of this noble characteristic of the soldier, the tastefully cut sod, the planted evergreen, the carefully carved headboard, all tell of the affectionate remembrance of that loved comrade. You will scarcely find such strong and enduring friendship, such a spirit of self-sacrifice, and such noble and grateful hearts, as among the soldiers. I think this is one reason why the nurses do not feel the fatigue of hospital duty more than they do. The gratitude of the men seems to act as a stimulant, and the patient, uncomplaining faces of those suffering men, almost invariably greet you with a smile. I used to think that it was a disgrace for any one, under ordinary circumstances, to be heard complaining, when those mutilated, pain-racked ones bore everything with such heroic fortitude. I was not in the habit of going among the patients with a long, doleful face, nor intimating by word or look that their case was a hopeless one, unless a man was actually dying, and I felt it to be my duty to tell him so. Cheerfulness was my motto, 
and a wonderful effect it had sometimes on the despondent, gloomy feelings of discouraged and homesick sufferers. I noticed that whenever I failed to arouse a man from such a state of feeling, it generally proved a hopeless case. They were very likely not to recover if they made up their minds that they must die, and persisted in believing that there was no alternative. There were a great many pleasant things in connection with our camp hospital duties. I really enjoyed gratifying some of the whims and strange fancies of our poor convalescent boys, with whom I had become quite a favorite. As I would pass along through the hospital in the morning, I would generally have plenty of assistance in helping to make out my program for the day. For one, I had to write letters, read some particular book to another, and for a third I must catch some fish. I remember on one occasion of an old Dutchman, a typhoid convalescent, declaring that he could eat nothing until he could get some fresh fish, and of course I must procure them for him. But, said I, the doctor must be consulted. Perhaps he will not think it best for you to have any fish yet until you are stronger. Well, I doesn't care for tea doctor. He doesn't know what mine appetite is tea fish I must have. Oh, mine cot, I must have some fish. And the old man wept like a child at the thought of being disappointed. Hunter's Creek was about a mile and a half from camp, where Mr. and Mrs. B. and I had spent many an hour fishing and shooting at the flocks of wild ducks which frequented it. So, after providing myself with hook, line, and bait, I made my way to the creek. Soon after I commenced operations, I drew up a monstrous eel, which defied all my efforts to release the hook from its jaws. At last I was obliged to draw it into camp by means of the line, and I was amply repaid for my trouble on seeing the delight of the convalescents, and especially of my old Dutchman, who continued to slap his hands together and say, "'Dat ish kud! Dat ish kud!' The eel was handed over to the cook to be prepared for dinner, and to the great satisfaction of the Dutchman, he was permitted to enjoy a portion of it. The army under McClellan began to assume a warlike aspect. Perfect order and military discipline were observed everywhere among the soldiers. It was a splendid sight to see those well-drilled troops on dress parade, or being reviewed by their gallant young commander, upon whose shoulders the stars sat with so much grace and dignity. The monotony of camp life began to be broken up by armed reconnaissances and skirmishing between the pickets. Our lines were pushed forward to Lewinsville on the right and to Munson's Hill in front. The pickets of both armies were posted in plain sight of each other, only separated by the beautiful cornfields and peach orchards. Picket firing was kept up all along the lines on both sides, notwithstanding that flags of truce had been sent in by both parties several times, requesting that this barbarous practice might cease. As soon as Mrs. B. was so far recovered as to be able to ride, we started one day, accompanied by Mr. B. and Dr. E., for Munson's Hill, to see the pickets on duty. We rode along until we came within a short distance of the rifle pits where our men were, when the rebels fired upon us. We turned and rode back until we came to a clump of trees, where we dismounted, hitched our horses, and proceeded the rest of the way on foot, part of the way having to crouch along on our hands and knees in order to escape the bullets which were whistling above us. We reached the rifle pits in safety, 
which were close to a rail fence, the rails of which were perfectly riddled with mini-balls. While we sat there looking through an opera glass, whiz came a ball, and struck the rail against which my head rested. Glancing, it passed through Dr. E.'s cap, and lodged in the shoulder of one of the men. We remained there until the firing ceased, then returned to camp, carrying with us the wounded man. Picket duty is one of the most perilous and trying duties connected with the service. A clergyman soldier, writing upon this subject, briefly describes it. Quote, Picket duty at all times is arbitrary, but at night is trebly so. No monarch on a throne, with absolute power, is more independent, or exercises greater sway for the time being, than a private soldier stationed on his beat with an enemy in front. Darkness veils all distinctions. He is not obliged to know his own officers or comrades, or the commanding general, only through the means of the countersign. With musket loaded and capped, he walks his rounds, having to do with matters only of life and death, and at the same time clothed with absolute power. It is a position of fearful importance and responsibility, one that makes a man feel solemn and terribly in earnest. Often, too, these posts are in thick woods, where the soldier stands alone, cut off from camp, cut off from his fellows, subject only to the harassings of his own imagination and sense of danger. The shadows deepen into inky night. All objects around him, even the little birds that were his companions during the day, are gathered within the curtains of a hushed repose. But the soldier, with every nerve and faculty of his mind strained to the utmost tension of keenness and sensibility, speaks only in whispers. His fingers tighten around the stock of his musket as he leans forward to catch the sound of approaching footsteps, or, in absence of danger, looks longingly up to the cold, gray sky with its wealth of shining stars. Yes, the picket is exposed to danger constantly, and to various kinds of danger. He knows not what moment a lurking foe may spring upon him from the darkness or a bullet from a scout or sharpshooter may reach him at any time. Then, too, he is exposed to the raging elements, heat and cold, rain and snow. No matter whether in the depths of the forest, or in the open plain, or in the rifle pit standing in water knee-deep, the poor picket must not heed the storm, but keep both eyes and ears open to catch the slightest sound. After severe marches, when the men are greatly fatigued, and it seems almost impossible to perform any more duty without rest and sleep, some, of course, are sent on picket duty, while the rest are permitted to sleep. Oh, how my heart has ached for those men, and it seemed to me that the persons and regiments in which I was most interested always had the most picket duty to perform. On the 14th of March, General McClellan issued an address to the Army of the Potomac, announcing the reasons why they had been so long unemployed. The Battle of Bull Run was fought in July 1861. It was now March 1862, and during this interval the Army of the Potomac, numbering some 250,000 men, had been inactive, accepting their daily drills behind their entrenchments. The flags of the enemy were in sight. Washington was in a state of siege, and not a transport could ascend the river without running the gauntlet of the rebel batteries. 
In his address, General McClellan announced the reasons for their inactivity as follows. Quote, Soldiers of the Army of the Potomac, for a long time I have kept you inactive, but not without a purpose. You were to be disciplined, armed, and instructed. The formidable artillery you now have had to be created. Other armies were to move and accomplish certain results. I have held you back that you might give the death blow to the rebellion that has distracted our once happy country. The patience you have shown and your confidence in your general are worth a dozen victories. These preliminary results are now accomplished. I feel that the patient labors of many months have produced their fruit. The Army of the Potomac is now a real army, magnificent in material, admirable in discipline and instruction, excellently equipped and armed. Your commanders are all that I could wish. The moment for action has arrived, and I know that I can trust in you to save our country. The period of inaction has passed. I will bring you now face to face with the rebels, and only pray that God may defend the right. End quote. Marching orders were issued once more to the Army of the Potomac. The sick were sent off, camps broken up, and all stood prepared for another encounter with the enemy. The bitter remembrance of the defeat at Bull Run still rankled in the minds of the men, and now they were anxious for an opportunity to retaliate upon the foe, and win back the laurels they had so ingloriously lost upon that disastrous field. Various speculations were indulged in with regard to their destination. One prophesied that they were going to Richmond by way of Fredericksburg, another was positive that they were to go by the way of Manassas, and a third declared that it was down the Shenandoah Valley to take Richmond on the flank and rear. But, to the utter astonishment of all, they were ordered to Alexandria to embark for Fortress Monroe. Regiment after regiment was huddled together on board until every foot of room was occupied, and there remained but little prospect of comfort for either officers or men. As soon as each transport received its cargo of men, horses, and provisions, it floated out into the stream, while another steamed up to the wharf in its place, until the whole fleet lay side by side, freighted with over a hundred thousand human lives, and awaiting the signal to weigh anchor. The troops were eager for a campaign. They had lain inactive so long, while victory thundered all around them, that they were becoming impatient to strike another blow at rebellion, and blot out the remembrance of the past. Roanoke, Pea Ridge, Newburn, Winchester, and Donelson were a succession of victories which had been achieved, and the Army of the Potomac had not participated in them. The men felt this, and were prepared for anything but inactivity. Everything being in readiness, the signal was given, and the whole fleet was soon moving in the direction of Fortress Monroe, with the stars and stripes floating from every masthead, and the music of national airs awakening the slumbering echoes as we swiftly glided over the quiet waters of the Potomac. The first real object of interest which presented itself was the monitor lying off Fortress Monroe. It reminded me of what I once heard a man say to his neighbor about his wife. Said he, Neighbor, you might worship your wife without breaking either of the Ten Commandments. How is that? asked the man because she is not the likeness of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. So thought I of the monitor. 
there she sat upon the water a glorious impregnable battery the wonder of the age the terror of rebels and the pride of the north the monitor was so novel in structure that a minute description shall be necessary to convey an accurate idea of her character Quote, she has two hulls the lower one is of iron five-eighths of an inch thick the bottom is flat and six feet six inches in depth sharp at both ends the cut water retreating at an angle of about thirty degrees the sides instead of having the ordinary bulge incline at an angle of about fifty one degrees this hull is one hundred and twenty four feet long and thirty four feet broad at the top resting on this is the upper hull flat-bottomed and both longer and wider than the lower hull so that it projects over in every direction like the guards of a steamboat it is one hundred and seventy-four feet long forty-one feet four inches wide and five feet deep these sides constitute the armor of the vessel in the first place is an inner guard of iron half an inch thick to this is fastened a wall of white oak placed endways and thirty inches thick to which are bolted six plates of iron each an inch thick thus making a solid wall of thirty-six and a half inches of wood and iron this hull is fastened upon the lower hull so that the latter is entirely submerged and the upper one sinks down three feet into the water thus but two feet of hull are exposed to a shot the under hull is so guarded by the projecting upper hull that a ball to strike it would have to pass through twenty-five feet of water the upper hull is also pointed at both ends the deck comes flush with the top of the hull and is made bomb-proof no railing or bulwark rises above the deck the projecting ends serve as a protection to the propeller rudder and anchor which cannot be struck neither the anchor or chain is ever exposed the anchor is peculiar being very short but heavy it is hoisted into a place fitted for it outside of the lower hull but within the impenetrable shield of the upper one on the deck are but two structures rising above the surface the pilot-house and turret the pilot-house is forward made of plates of iron the whole about ten inches in thickness and shot-proof small slits and holes are cut through to enable the pilot to see his course the turret which is apparently the main feature of the battery is a round cylinder twenty-five feet in interior diameter and nine feet high it is built entirely of iron plates one inch in thickness eight of them securely bolted together one over another within this is a lining of one inch iron acting as a damper to deaden the efforts of a concussion when struck by a ball thus there is a shield of nine inches of iron the turret rests on a bed plate or ring of composition which is fastened to the deck to help support the weight which is about a hundred tons a vertical shaft ten inches in diameter is attached and fastened to the bulkhead the top is made shot-proof by huge iron beams and perforated to allow of ventilation it has two circular portholes both on one side of the turret three feet above the deck and just large enough for the muzzle of the gun to be run out the turret is made to revolve being turned by a special engine the operator within by a rod connected with the engine is enabled to turn it at pleasure it can be made to revolve at the rate of sixty revolutions a minute 
and can be regulated to stop within a half a degree of a given point. When the guns are drawn in to load, the porthole is stopped by a huge iron pendulum, which falls to its place and makes that part as secure as any, and can be quickly hoisted to one side. The armament consists of two eleven-inch Dahlgren guns. Various improvements in the gun carriage enable the gunner to secure the most perfect aim. The engine is not of great power, as the vessel was designed as a battery and not for swift sailing. It being almost entirely under water, the ventilation is secured by blowers, drawing the air in forward and discharging it aft. A separate engine moves the blowers and fans the fires. There is no chimney, so the draft must be entirely artificial. The smoke passes out of gratings in the deck. Many suppose the monitor to be merely an iron-clad vessel with a turret. But there are, in fact, between thirty and forty patentable inventions upon her, and the turret is by no means the most important one. Very properly, what these inventions are is not proclaimed to the public." End of chapter 4